So the topic for tonight is teenage or mean age. We're going to give some keys for raising teenagers tonight. Teenagers are difficult. I was a difficult teenager. I hate to label any age group because they're also unique. They're special. They're in transition from being a child to an adult. God uses teenagers. He used David. He used Joseph. God has special anointings that he pours out for young people. So I think part of the problem is the church looks down on teenagers. We don't cultivate their gifts the way we should. We don't promote them as we should. And we don't view them as adults. So there are some things we can do better as a church, as parents in the kingdom, to help our teenagers find out who they are in Christ. I thought it was interesting today, an hour before I was to teach this lesson, a 16-year-old came into my office and shared with me that he was called to ministry. And uh, that made me happy. And it's a, it's a serious call. It's a legitimate call. He's called to preach. So when someone tells me that, there's two things I do. Number one is I celebrate them. And the next thing I do is caution them, try to talk them out of it. You say, why would you try to talk someone out of the ministry? Because I want to make sure that God's called them. So I do think that was God's way of telling me that he's doing something with this generation, that, he, that the, this next generation is really going to take back, um, you know, the areas of darkness. And we're going to see that great revival before Jesus comes back. So I believe in teenagers. I believe that God will use a teenager. So when I make jokes or go through some of this, I don't want you to think I'm minimizing a teenager. Nor am I saying that every journey through those teenage years has to be a difficult one. I don't believe that whatsoever. I really believe for some, those teenage years can be the best time of their lives. They, it can be a joyful time. But there are some struggles uh, during those teen years that we all face. I have a 21-year-old, 16-year-old, and a 13-year-old. And they're all different. And so my boys have made me so proud but they're different. There are things that I would have done different with, with Trey, who's now almost 22. Uh, there's some things that uh, I'm learning with my second born about parenting. And with my third, there'll be things that I do differently and that I pivot on and reverse course on by way of the Holy Spirit. So I want to come to you tonight from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I, I believe there's some good wisdom in there. Ephesians is the church epistle. The Apostle Paul's on house arrest, and he talks about matters of the family, matters of the church, because the Apostle Paul understood under the unction of the Lord that a healthy church had to have healthy families, and that healthy families would only remain healthy if they were connected to a church. That's why they call it the church epistle. It is the epistle, the letter, written to build up the local church. And so we should understand that church should indeed be a priority. The enemy hates the godly family. The enemy hates the nuclear family. The enemy hates generational legacy. I've taught you that before. God is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a God of the first, second, and the third generation. He gives us generational blessings, but the enemy is handing out generational curses. And there are things that we deal with because of our bad decisions. When bloodlines are broken, that goes two to three generations. But Jesus paid the price for those curses. He bore those on the cross. So we don't have to live under some imaginary curse that comes from the enemy. We can have peace from within and we can change our family line and family dynamic. 
So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, says this, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Uh, whenever a teenager watches their parents go through a divorce, it does something to their psychological balance that until Jesus gets involved will plague them for the remainder of their lives. When a teenager uh, sees the pressure on a single parent, usually a single mother, sometimes a single father, when a, when a young person goes from a child to a teenager and they go from just really being a helpless child to actually worrying whether the lights will stay on, the food will be in the fridge, it does something to a teenager's mind as it's developing that can have lasting consequences and problems. Uh, when there's no authority in the home, which we've preached on before, you see a teenager begin to venture off and try things and to rebel and to, to go different places whenever there's no authority in the home, whenever there's not clear direction as to who's in charge and there's no thought or even worry of discipline. Uh, you're going to have problems in the home. Whenever a family uh, has no faith, they're not connected to a family of faith, they're not walking uh, in the freedom that is Christ, you're going to see that show up uh, in the later years because it does psychological damage to a teenager. If a child is abused or a teenager's been abused, raped, molested, sexually, physically, they've been abused or verbally, later those things will show up. Uh, they begin to take root of the mind. It's what the Bible calls strongholds. Those traumatic experiences will take hold of a person's emotions, their development, the way they view relationships, the way they look at themselves and the way they view God. So we say these things so that people will be aware that our decisions matter as parents. Our decisions matter as grandparents. Our decisions matter as single parents. And what we expose our children to will have eternal sometimes and at a very minimum earthly consequences. And so parenting is very important. I remember when my oldest was about eight years old, I had the grand idea to buy an air hockey table for him for Christmas. Now, I can't put together anything. It's a generational curse passed down to me from my dad. I hate putting stuff together, and I'm thankful now I'm at a place in my life where I can pay extra to have someone put things together when I buy them for my kids because I'm awful at it. And some of you that are good at it are probably like, just read the directions, dummy. Well, I've tried that. I've organized the screws and the Allen wrenches, and I'm not good at it, okay? And so back then, you had some cell phones, but technology wasn't quite what it is today 14 years ago so I got on our home computer and ordered this air hockey table it looked awesome in the picture it got to my house like December 22nd and the way we do Christmas is the kids come down on Christmas morning things have arrived Santa showed up whatever so this comes in December 22nd well I'm like nah, no big deal put it together tomorrow Maybe Christmas Eve, I'll stay up all night. It'll be real festive and great. 
This thing had thousands of parts and hundreds of screws. Like it was the most exhausting thing I've ever done. So one of my best friends who recently rejoined this church after living in uh, South Carolina for years, he ended up being an engineer, but he was in college to become an engineer at the time. His name's Jody Dunnigan. And so I called Jody and Jody stayed up with me till like 5 a.m. putting this stupid thing together. We'd put it together, we put it together wrong uh, after like three hours and we were just kind of winging it and we had to take it apart and start all over and actually follow the directions like we should have to start with step by step. So in order in parenting and especially the teenage years, I believe we have to really look at the biblical principles and sometimes in the lives of our teenagers, they need to do over and we need to do over. And one of the greatest things I think I've done as a dad is admit when I've been wrong. Sounds harsh, sounds crazy, sounds even weak, but every time I've, I've messed up or said something I regret to my children, I've owned it. I haven't tried to bully them or be better or even use spirituality or my knowledge of the Bible to win the argument. I, I've been able to admit that I was wrong and try to build a bridge. So sometimes we have to start over and do things God's way. So if you're listening to this tonight in-house or you're listening on the podcast, maybe you need to do over. Maybe you need to start over with your teenager. It's not too late. You can still do it God's way. This Holy Spirit can still get involved. You can build a bridge with your child. Maybe you were an absentee mother or father and you've made all the mistakes, but now you're back in uh, the life of your teenager. Start now. Start uh, from scratch. Get the biblical direction that you need and believe God that he can build a bridge and I believe he will. So the teenager, the mean age. Well, it depends on what the experience is. Uh, The questions I would have for you as parents is, what have you modeled for your children? What have you modeled? Are they exhibiting behavior that they've seen you model or seen you act out in front of them? Question one. Question two, what have we spoken into our teenagers or our children? Are they exhibiting behaviors that are the manifestation of the things that we've said about them or to them in anger? Question three, how have we invested in our children? So what have we modeled in front of them? What have we spoken into them? And how have we invested in our children? Whatever you invest from birth to 12 will manifest from 13 to 18. Whatever you invest from birth to 12 will manifest from eight, or excuse me, from 13 to 18. It's important that you understand that. So let's give you some keys tonight to raising children and honoring God from the book of Ephesians. I believe if you do these things, starting at a young age, your child will not depart from the faith as an adult. The first one, make Christ and church a priority. Number one, make Christ and church a priority. As I said, this is the church epistle, so of course it's going to begin with the church. Um, Paul deals with the home life and the church life in the same context. Um, You can't love God and hate his church. You can't love God and hate his church. And I see many kids in our region, in this area, that aren't in church, that don't understand the value of church. Their parents don't bring them to church. There's no standard for church. They have no memories of church. 
And the idea of going to church is asinine to them. Why would I want to go to church? Why would I want to get up out of bed on a Sunday and go to church? Why would I want to go to a youth event on Wednesday night? Why would I want to do that? Did someone die or someone getting married? Because that's what most of the students in our region think of church. They think it's religious. They think it's stiff. They don't understand why they need to go there unless someone's dying, dead, or there's some kind of special activity going on. So we as a church have to change that. And the most balanced kids are the kids raised in church. Even if at times they were frustrated with the fact they had to be in church all the time. Listen, I lived here. I, uh, listen, I was drugged to church. Was it church all the time? Was it funerals, funeral homes, weddings, churches, services all the time? And, you know, I hated it, but I'm thankful for it now. I remember one time I was talking to Pastor Angie. She's in here. I'm going to pick on her tonight. Uh, I was talking to her daughter, Sylvie, and she was telling me about one of her traumatic childhood memories. She was in children's church waiting to go home, and they told her that, that she had to wait. Mom was casting out devils from somebody over here. And she was like, I don't care what she's casting out. I'm hungry, and I'm ready to go home. So uh, when you're raised in ministry, that's just kind of part of your life. You're at church last. Uh, you, you're here all the time. You see the inner workings of it. And I'm grateful for it now, but it's really a burden of mine that uh, our generation is not in church. I, it, it really is. Um, my middle son loved church as a child, but you know he's in a season where he doesn't want to be here now, and it breaks my heart. We still make him, and uh, we still force the issue, but that breaks my heart, you know. And I, I, I'm trying to put my finger on it. I'm trying as a dad to be led by the spirit. I don't want to force it because I don't think that works. But at the same time, I don't want to not force it because I don't think that works. So, you know, we get in these situations with our kids and we, and we, we just try to seek God as to what he would have us to do. Uh, Ephesians 5 verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and uh, the church. Christ and the church. So what wisdom, you know, can we offer young adults or teenagers um, under the umbrella of Christ and his church? First is we need to encourage them to make wise decisions, encourage wise living. My grandmother would say it like this, don't be stupid, don't do stupid things. Kids nowadays want to know why. They, you know, don't do this is not enough. They want to know why I shouldn't do this. So I almost have to get doctoral in my explanations with my teenagers as to why I don't want them to do this. Well, this is what you will lose if you make this decision. This is what you have the potential to miss out on in life. This is what could happen. This is worst case scenario. This is best case scenario. And then once you put it to your teenager in that manner, here's the reasons why you shouldn't do this. Here, here are the consequences of this, these decisions. And here are the benefits of making the right decisions. What I find is most of the time when you enlighten your teenager with the pros and cons, they really don't want the negative. They want the positive. They want the better life. Uh, teenage decisions have consequences. I wish they didn't. Uh, you know, in my high school years, we buried three people. It was devastating. Uh, 20 plus years later, the parents are still in mourning over it. 20 plus years later, it's still not fair. 
because other kids did far worse things than they did and lived through them. It devastated a school. It you know, devastated a region. It devastated families. It devastated a generation. But teenage decisions have consequences, have real consequences. Sometimes they end in death. And so I worry about that all the time with my kids because of what I've experienced in my life. When you've buried your friends, when you look at your teenagers, it's, it's a little different in the way you parent. You, you, you send the extra texts. You make some extra calls to make sure they're where they say they are. Once you've buried your friends as a teenager, then when you look at your teenager, you want to make sure that they're telling you the truth. Because I believe teenagers are awesome, but they're the best liars that God ever made. I think Adam and Eve were teenagers. I really do. Um, I, I, they are the best liars. They can look you in the face and lie if they're not walking with the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 15. See that you walk circumspectly. Proceed with caution is what that word circumspectly means. It means to proceed with caution. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Okay, so... We want them to be wise. We want them to walk with wisdom, to proceed with caution, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So we encourage wise living. We have to make sure they're aware of their surroundings, that there are consequences for what they do. Wisdom in Scripture is applying truth and knowledge to wise choices. That's what it means. It is being able to avoid foolish decisions. Um, it's also making the most of every opportunity. Um, it's taking advantage of a Kairos moment. It's seeing the opportunity, seeing what you're born into, what you have in front of you that's blessed, and teaching your kids to pursue what's best for them. Not with an entitlement mentality, but with a spiritual mentality. If I pursue this path and pursue the right people, it's going to set me up for God's best in my life. Amen? So we encourage wise living to our teenagers. Number two, uh, we help them seek God's plan for their lives. Parents, not our plan. We all create molds for our kids when they're born and try to fit our kids into the mold we created for them. That's not the way it works. God has a plan for each child. Even this baby over here, God's got a plan for this baby. God's got a plan. Now, we as parents, we think we know what's best for our kids. And when they're little, we're the stewards of those vessels. So we certainly have to make those decisions. But when they become teenagers, the best thing you can do for your teenager is teach them God's heart. Teach them to hear his spirit. Teach them to love his word and help them discover God's plan for them. Not for you, but for them. Um, says, do not be unwise, but understand, verse 17, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Amen? Understand what the will of the Lord is. So it's not only to encourage wise decisions that won't cripple them spiritually for the rest of their lives. We teach them to seek God's plan for their lives, to figure out who he created them to be. So I've taught on this before, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail too much, but there's God's sovereign will, there's his permissive will, and then his submissive will. His submissive will is our free will. He submits to our free will. 
In other words, God doesn't control every aspect of this earth. He has foreknowledge, just like a weather forecaster has foreknowledge of what's going to happen, but we don't blame uh, the weather person when a tornado hits. God has foreknowledge, but we have a free will. And so God has a sovereign will, which is his plan. Then he has a permissive will. He'll permit Satan sometimes to attack and to do things that aren't fair for the greater good. And then the submissive will, which submits to our free will. And so we have to teach our children, hey, you have a free will, make wise decisions. But understand what the will of God is. What is God's sovereign will? What is God's plan for your life. And the worst thing we can do is push our children in a direction that doesn't fit them. Push them towards an anointing that doesn't fit them like a glove. I see this all the time. Parents pushing their uh, kids to be involved in sports when the kid hates sports. Parents pushing their kids towards music when the kid hates music. Um, it, it does irreversible damage sometimes to a child for their parent to not accept them unless they do what the parent thinks they should do. Uh, sometimes there's a gift inside that child that you may not have had, but that gift has to be drawn out uh, and cultivated. And you might have the greatest surgeon that ever walked the face of the earth you're raising, but you're trying to get them to hit a baseball. And they couldn't hit a baseball if they tried. But you, you have a gifted surgeon on your hands. And, and instead of pushing them towards academia, you're pushing them towards athletics. We all make those mistakes at times, but those of us that know the Lord and know his spirit know how to rein that in if it gets out of hand. And I've seen it too many times, parents pushing their children to be what they weren't, not who God wants the child to be. So seek God's plan for their lives. I'm just going to get real practical with this one. Teach them to avoid drugs and alcohol. I'm just going to say it like it is. Um, Drugs and alcohol teach a teenager excess, escape, and ecstasy, how to have an out-of-body experience. Uh, I've taught on drinking. I've given the biblical definition of what wine is, all of those things many times. That's not what this message is about. A pastor's job is not to talk you into sin. A pastor's job is to give you what the Word of God says and let the Spirit do a work in your life. Most of you in here are adults, not teenagers. Are there people that can have a drink or two and be fine? I'm sure there, there are. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, but for a teenager, their minds, even science will tell you this, their minds can't take uh, excessive drug use, not even marijuana, even though marijuana is just about legal everywhere now. Their minds can't take an abundance of that, nor can it take an abundance of alcohol. It, it does all kinds of things to their growth pattern, their muscle development, the way they think. And one of the biggest things that has have really plagued this generation, I believe with all my heart, is drugs and alcohol. I, friends, I've done so many funerals. The last five years, people my age or younger that I went to school with, I'm talking people with 4.0 GPAs. I'm talking about former cheerleaders. I'm talking about college athletes. I'm talking about people you'd have never thought would have done a drug the day in your life that ended up on heroin and fentanyl and everything you, can, you can't even imagine. And you know where it started? Little weed. Little weed. I don't even think weed does much to you. But I do believe it's a gateway. I believe that till the day I die. It's a gateway. It opens your mind to a portal of escape. 
And the Bible, the Greek is called pharmakia. It's a, it's a witchcraft word, and we get our word pharmacy for it. And these teenagers today, man, they have access to everything. Like when I was a kid, you had to work to sin. Like they can sin on their phones in three seconds. They can find anything. It's available to them instantly. So we as parents, I'm not saying be the SWAT team or the police or, and, and make them feel like they're in prison, but just understand it's out there, it's everywhere. Be checking, be looking. Don't walk around with your blinders on. I don't care how good the grades are, how good at sports they are, drugs and alcohol, it's everywhere. The way I teach this uh, to many people, uh, not teenagers, but to young adults is don't let today's celebration become tomorrow's medication. But what I've seen in my generation at 41 years old is the celebration of high school became the medication of adulthood. People that were just celebrating in high school have to have drugs now prescribed and everything else just to make it through every day. And that's sad to me. And I think that's the end game of the devil is to start something that's good, that relaxes you, that helps you sleep, that you can have fun with, and then hook itself to you so that you can't sleep, you can't function, you can't have fun without it. And yes, there are kids that go through a phase and that have fun in college and all that. I understand that. But what I've seen happen too many times is that today's celebration becomes tomorrow's medication. So just to let you know, I'm not throwing this um, just up to the ceiling. This is the next verse, Ephesians 5, 18. We were just in verse 17. Be not drunk with wine where it is of excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. So the way to teach this to your kid is, is, is not to go, you can't ever have a drink of wine or you're going to hell. Okay, that's not going to work. Okay, they're going to get to college and some of the most brilliant people will be drinking. But what I would say is there's no high like the most high. And I would say that anytime you have to continuously escape through the methods of this world, you are giving the things of this world the role that the Spirit wants to play in your life because the Holy Spirit will help you rest. It'll bring you peace. It'll help you sleep. It will heal you. It will help carry you through anxiety, loss, and depression. You know, more than the Spirit's will. And so I would say, look, everybody has to make their own decisions on moderation. I'm not going to judge you. If you drink, don't be hiding from me at a restaurant. I don't like that. Okay, just be real. I'm not judging. I'm talking about teenagers here. I would say to any teenager, do not do these things. Be filled with the Spirit and do not allow drugs and alcohol to replace the, the thrilling power and the filling power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? The next is teach them how to move heaven to earth. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. In other words, teach them how to worship. Teach them how to get a hold of God. Teach them how to dwell in the secret place of the Most High, Psalm 91. Teach them how to pray. Teach them how to call on the name that's above every name. Teach them where to go when you don't have the answers. 
Because if they look to you, mom or dad, every time they get in trouble, they're not looking to the right source. They need to look past you to Abba Father into the kingdom of heaven and learn how to call on Abba Father. That will help you too because you'll take the pressure off you and you'll put it on God to help them. And if you teach them how to get a hold of God and you move heaven to earth through spiritual songs, you know, everybody makes fun of people that are spiritual and pray and worship and speak in tongues and pray and all this stuff. But this is what it says. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, having an intimate moment with God. You teach them to have intimacy with God They won't be having intimacy with the world. Next, we must teach them how to war against the entitlement mentality. Teach them how to war against the entitlement mentality. In other words, we need to teach our kids to be thankful. Verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks. Listen, this generation of millennials and the group coming after them, they're the most entitled people I've ever met in my life. And I'm sorry if you have a kid that's a millennial, they're entitled. They are. It's okay. They have gifts. They, God wants to use them. We've got to break that entitlement mentality. I've never seen anything like it. People don't stay with jobs. They don't stay with marriages. They don't stay with anything. They get their feelings hurt. And people will literally walk away from a six-figure job if they get their feelings hurt, these millennials. There's no faithfulness. There's no grit. And I'm not beating them up, but I'm saying for those of us who are raising kids, and who are raising teenagers, we need to teach them a little grit, a little stick to it, a little you signed up, you finish. You don't have to like it. You don't ever have to do it again, but let's keep our commitments. Let's be faithful. We signed up to do this. We're going to church today because dad signed up to work the parking lot or dad's a deacon or mom's doing this or mom's a servant, mom's a pastor, mom's whatever it may be. We need to teach this next generation some grit. You're blessed to live in the United States of America. Even if you're in a trailer or in public housing, you are more wealthy than 80% of the world. Our kids need to know they're blessed. If they're born in America, they're blessed. If they're raised in a middle-class family and have the freedom to attend a church like Ivas House or many of the churches in our region, they're blessed. They could live in communist China. They could live in third world countries, have nothing to eat. We've got to teach our kids, and I feel like I beat my boys to death with this that they are blessed. I've taken two of them on a mission trip with me to see how the rest of the world lives because I want them to know what they have. Things aren't perfect, but you are blessed. And our children need to know that they are blessed and they need to know how to give thanks to God for the blessing, not expect that kind of blessing everywhere they go. It's an entitlement mentality. And the way we war against it is teach them to be thankful. We're what, a month away from Thanksgiving. So let's start practicing that now, being thankful. Let's don't just wait till the month of November. Let's be thankful for the things that God has given us. Amen. For our salvation, for his favor, his grace, for eternal life, for a church, a family, for the people we have around us, for the breath in our lungs, for all the things he's given us and brought us through. We need to teach our children to be thankful. And how do we do that? By being thankful ourselves. They need to see us giving thanks unto the Lord. That's how we model it. Remember, it's about what we model, it's about what we speak into them, and it's about what we invest into them. What we model, what we speak, what we invest. So if we're investing into them and we're modeling Thanksgiving, then that will be a seed in their life that will come to harvest later. Number two, love never fails, okay? Um, Make church and Christ a priority. Number two, love never fails. Uh, Let's define 
love. Love is not the absence of discipline or accountability. Love is not protection from consequences. Love is not allowing the teenager to dishonor or disrespect you. Love is service. Love is faithfulness. Love is kind, as it says in Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. But it is agape. It is sacrificial love. So even when your kid breaks your heart, you show up and keep being a mom and dad. That's sacrificial love. Even when you've had the biggest fight with your teenager that you have ever had, and they've said things to hurt you, you still do your job. You don't approve of it, but they still see you present in their lives. They still, still see you doing the job of a father or mother. That's love. That's love. It never fails. Um, here's some must for every, every father and every mother. Under the umbrella of love, uh, the first thing that shows them love is, and I taught you this two weeks ago, is authority. Authority must be modeled. It says in verse 21 through 24 of Ephesians 5, our text for tonight, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That has to do with marriage, of course. And then it gets into wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. We've taught you already in this series that the word submission means to rank under. It's not a demeaning word towards women. It is a willing submission. It's the same word used of Jesus when he willingly submitted to the cross. So it is a willing submission based on how much the head, the husband, loves the wife as Christ loves the church. So a godly marriage is a good example for a young person when they see it represent the scriptures. When they see the husband is the head, loving his wife, treating her with respect, valuing her wishes, and a wife submitting to the husband as the head of the house and they see that mutual submission, it teaches them about the Father's love. It teaches them about the finished work of Jesus Christ. It teaches them how the Holy Spirit brings unity to a situation. It models authority. Um, so I would say this, even if it's a single parent, don't beat yourself up if you don't have the traditional home. As long as you are present in the home, even if you're the mother, if you're the authority, you put God the Father as the head and you love God the Father until someone gives you uh, the husband that God has for you. Uh, if you're a single dad, model the authority and love the church until God sends you the bride that he has for you. It's possible. It can happen. It may sound cliche, but God can do it. There has to be agape love. This is what it says uh, further down, husbands love your wives. We've taught you that just as Christ has also loved the church. But here's the key phrase and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such a thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So this is about why Christ loves the church in such a way and why the church would submit so that it would be a glorious picture of God in his tabernacle. 
That's why husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And then it says, we are all members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So the point here is authority must be modeled. Um, when it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, it's the same word found in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Same agape love represented here in our salvation as is depicted in marriage. So we need to understand that God is a sacrificial God. And if your marriage is going to make it, you've got to be willing to sacrifice. If you're going to be able to raise godly kids, it's going to be a sacrifice. So let me quickly give you just my Ronnie Phillips version of sacrificial love. What is sacrificial love? Number one, it's a seed that brings a harvest. Everybody say that with me in here, a seed. Sacrificial love is a seed that brings a harvest. In other words, if you sacrifice for your marriage or you sacrifice for your children, you, you may not see the fruit of that immediately, right? But it will bring about a harvest later. So when you show someone agape love, it's a seed that brings a harvest. Number two, it's transformational. When you love someone that doesn't deserve it or that's not acting like a lovable person, a teenager sometimes, it's transformational. When you love someone that doesn't deserve it, it can be transformational. It can be that seed that brings transformation to their lives. Sacrificial love is also everlasting. It lasts throughout eternity. It's not a sexual thing. It's not a flesh thing. It's a spiritual kind of love. And the Bible says that that is what lasts long after our bodies decay and are gone. Sacrificial love is not only a seed that brings a harvest. It's not only transformational. It's not only everlasting. It is rewarding. It is rewarding. You know, at the end of your life, many people believe you need millions of dollars. No, it's about what you leave behind spiritually and how many people you've shown love to. That's how you know if you've done it right. It's how you made people feel. It's, it's, it's what you were willing to give people when you didn't feel like it. Did you really exist for the right reasons? And did you really invest in the lives of other people? Did you serve those that couldn't do anything for you in return? We're most like Jesus when we serve people that can't give us anything in return. Sometimes when you're raising kids, they can't do anything for you. They're just, you want to choke them, but you don't. You love them because that's what God called you to do. And if you feel like you're getting the raw end of the deal, go to the cross. Go to that instrument of death. Remember what Jesus did for your sins, what he's put up with from you, and then allow the Spirit to help you be patient with your teenager. It's a seed that brings a harvest. It's transformational. It's everlasting. It's rewarding. It's also nourishing and growing. Sacrificial love is something that will help nourish and grow every relationship. Number three, set boundaries for your teenagers. What are boundaries? Family rules and principles. Your way of doing things. And as a Christian, your principles should be based on the word of God. I parent like this, and I believe it's found in the word of God. I, I give my kids room to rebel and fail. 
within certain boundaries. So I create boundaries, but I give them room to fail and even rebel at times. That's the way I do it. I'm able to pick them up when they fall. If they cross that boundary line, there are major consequences, and there's major consequences if they fail or fall within those boundaries. But I give them room to make mistakes. I don't follow my kids around 24 hours like the police. I don't think that's being a good parent. I think that raises fakes and frauds. And I, I want a real relationship with my kids. And if they can't talk to me, if they can't be open and honest with me, then if they do have a real issue or an addiction, then they won't even tell me about it because all they look to me for is some kind of warden of a prison. So I create boundaries. This is what we believe. This is what we do. But within these boundaries, I'm going to give you freedom. If you mess it up, then I'm going to take some of that freedom. Then I'm going to move those boundary lines in a little tighter because you've broken trust with me. And that's what I believe God the Father does for all of us. It's what he did for Adam and Eve. I believe that's what Jesus paid for is our freedom. We don't deserve it. We mess it up a lot of times within the boundaries God has created for us. But because of the blood of Jesus, we've been redeemed. Amen. I'm starting to preach in this teaching tonight. Hallelujah. So I give my kids boundaries. I believe the Bible teaches that we give them healthy boundaries. I believe that teaches them character, teaches them how to fail and fall. It also teaches them how to have relationships with other people. Now, there are two trains of thought in raising kids, and I think they're both right, and we need a little bit of both. There is the, I'm going to separate my kids from sinners, people of the world. I'm going to put them over here, Christian school, Christian people, Christian environment. And then they get to college, and they freak out sometimes because they've never been around sinners. They've never had to experience anything. And then there's this other way where it's like, hey, just, just go all in with the world and don't be different. Don't be separate at all. Neither one, I believe, is the biblical way. We're supposed to shine our light in the dark world. Sometimes teenagers aren't mature enough to shine their light, so we have to protect from that. But I do think we need healthy boundaries. Now let's move to the, to the children. We go from Ephesians 5 to Ephesians 6. It says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right there. There, there aren't any children in here, but I still think these principles are valuable. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. The promise is very key here, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So obedience is not optional for a child. When they're little, you have to teach them to obey. Virginia McClary asked me a great question on email about spanking, and we're going to get into that a little bit more next week. Um, she's adopted some different methods. And one of the reasons that she's adopted these different methods is because of what I said in week one, that sometimes we spank in anger, and that's not of God. So it's better not to spank if you're going to spank in anger. And many of us have, have, have spanked in anger. We, we've spanked in the flesh. We haven't done it in the spirit and, and to teach them. We've done it because we're angry at them because they've upset us or disappointed us. And so because she found herself doing that, I'm not trying to tell on Virginia, if you're listening, don't be mad at me, Virginia. But she, she's a, adopted some new principles as they've gotten older. And 
I'm reading up on some of those, but I'll tell you this, I've never met a parent and I believe as a child, you use the rod of correction. You do that right, being led by the spirit of the Lord. But I do believe that season comes to an end and it's different for every, every family. But you know, once they're teenagers, if you shouldn't have to keep be trying to whip a grown up, and you know, in Jewish culture, after 12, they're grown and you're sitting there beating on a grown up. to me, that doesn't make much biblical sense. And so that's for the rearing of a child. And if you've done it right, you hope that there's a built-in respect and fear and reverence for you as a parent. But obedience is not optional. If it's optional at five, it'll be optional at 15. They'll be telling you they're going to do what they want to do. So it must be taught early in life. It's right. It's simply right. That's what the Bible says. You do it because it's right. Um, and you have to require that in your home. Those principles will protect that child, teaches them honor. It teaches them respect for authority. As I've said before, honor is the currency of heaven. It goes on to say, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. O obedience means you, that you do what they tell you to. Honor means you love and respect, cover their nakedness, and take care of them and value them and treat them as royalty. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you. It'll be well with your soul. You'll be at peace, no anxiety, at peace with how you lived, and you may live long on the earth. So this honor factor is a key to future blessing. I've preached this so many times when I preach on the kingdom. I sometimes... And most of you in here I know pretty well, and, I, and I, I see you live by these principles, and I've seen God use it in your life at every level. But I wish I could tell some, some people that I preach to just how much honor will promote them. It will change your life, man. It will put you in circles you never thought you could be in just by simply walking in humility on one hand and honor on the other. When you honor those that have gone before you, those that know things you don't, those that have done things you don't, those that have a position of authority, when you walk in honor, it doesn't even matter if the person is worthy of it or not. The favor of God will fall on your life. And when you honor your father and mother, it's completely different. Jewish culture takes this honor thing very seriously very seriously, more serious than we as Christians do. But I'm telling you, there's a blessing attached to honor. And when you honor your parents, you say, what if my parents did this? Now, if they abused you sexually or something, you're not honoring that. But simply because a parent wasn't perfect and made some mistakes, and did the best they could, you know, get over that. Honor your father and mother. You know, if they were criminal against you, that's different. But if they tried and they provided for you, put a roof over your head, tried to teach you right from wrong, you know, let go of the things that they fell short in and honor them. And when you do that, God will open the windows of heaven. One of our pastors in our church, Pastor Clarence Hawthorne, he, he's a dear friend of mine. He has a testimony. You know, he didn't know his father. His father left when he was younger. He didn't meet his father until he was a grown adult. And then his father got a terminal illness. And Clarence had bitterness all those years about his father leaving. And instead of holding on to that bitterness, he cared for his father the last years of his life, served him, fed him, changed him, honored him. And Clarence is blessed because of it. Clarence has a beautiful family. Clarence has a blessed career. He's a pastor. God has done things in his life that can't be explained. And I really believe one of the key factors is because he honored his father, even though his father was absent. 
throughout his childhood. He decided to choose honor. And I'm telling you, it's hard. It takes help by the way of the Holy Spirit. You've got to be spirit-filled to love those that are unlovable and to honor those that don't deserve it. But when you do, it sets you up for success. And when you teach honor, you set your child up for success. You teach them that principle. Long after you're gone, they'll know how to adapt and overcome. Now back to something I touched on early in week one, and I'll close here. Because I, I repented in week one. I'm not going to repent again tonight. It's under the blood, okay? Do not provoke, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, and it, it doesn't say fathers and mothers in most translations. It says fathers. I guess because dads, we just really suck at this. Uh, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, to anger, to temper tantrums, to evil. But bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Once you learn your child's characteristics, personalities, emotions, and you'll, you should learn it by the time they're five or six. If you're involved, you should know kind of their personality, what makes them tick. Then you know what provokes them and what brings peace to them if you are an involved parent that's present. And the Bible says that we as fathers should not provoke our children to anger. We should not say things to trigger them. Everybody uses that word trigger now. And dad, you know what you can say that will trigger your child, your son or daughter. Amen? Dad's looking at me all spiritual in this room. But we know, as I said in week one, in an effort to make my oldest tough, and he hates it when I tell this now, dad. He told me last year to stop. He was like, dad, I love you. We're good. But I use this to help other people, not because I'm guilty of it. I'm feeling guilty of it because I made it right when he was 12 years old, but in an effort to make my oldest tough and mentally tough, I was super hard on him and I would provoke him sometimes to create this mental toughness in him. And I had to repent when he was 12, we were having a prayer meeting at the house and the spirit dropped in my house. There was about 25 people there and the spirit of God just hit. I repented to him, prayer and broke out crying. And it didn't heal everything immediately, but over the next five or six years, it began to heal some of that. And I would say, you know, we have to learn what to say, when to say it, how to say it to our children. We can provoke our children to bad behavior and to wrath. We can break their spirit with what we say. And, uh, you know, I'm guilty of this. I think most parents are. Sometimes we have bad days. We say stuff we don't mean. We, we, we end up cursing them when we're trying to bless them. We end up, you know, stomping on their confidence by accident just because we're tired and we're not thinking about what we're saying. Our words carry weight when we're in a position of authority. Our words matter. So going back to Ephesians 5, when you're walking circumspectly, means you're proceeding with caution. With your words to your children, to the next generation, I would say proceed with caution with your mouth, with your actions, with what you model. Be careful what you say to your children. You know, they're gifted and they're brilliant. They're different. They may not be good at this or good at that. Don't say things that make them feel inferior in the kingdom of God, that pigeonhole them into one field or or one train of thought. Some of the most brilliant people in life would have probably been in special ed in some of our public schools. 
I'm talking about inventors and scientists that had Asperger's and autism. They wouldn't have even been allowed to be in regular school classes. So everybody's got a gift, right? And we have to learn how to pull that out of our children. Just because they're different doesn't mean they're dumb, doesn't mean they're not as good as their older brother, younger brother, middle brother, whatever. We've got to find what's special about our kids and we've got to cultivate that. So we must get involved in their lives, teach and correct them. And I close here, and this, this sounds generic, especially for a spirit-filled church, but you gotta allow the spirit to lead you. Listen, if, if the spirit of God wakes you up at midnight and you got a teenager, text them, call them. I don't care if you're being weird. I don't care if they make fun of you. If the spirit of God wakes you up or you can't sleep and your teenager's out, you call them, you find out where they are. That's the spirit of God talking to you. I mean it, I've done it. I've checked on my kids. One time I called one of my kids. I'm not going to say which one it is. And uh, I called him and checked on him. Something was wrong with my spirit. They said everything right. Thought they hung up the phone. They left that joker on. And I heard the conversation going on. I listened in for about two minutes. And then we had a serious conversation. And uh, we had to deal out some discipline. Because the Spirit was speaking to me. I knew something wasn't right. I knew there was somewhere they shouldn't have been. And every now and then you need to listen to the Spirit of God, respond to the Spirit of God, and listen, not just about disciplinary issues. Sometimes your kid needs a word of encouragement. If your Spirit says, tell them you love them, and you're not someone that says that a lot, say it. If the Spirit says, brag on them, find something good to say about them, build them up today, you don't know what was said to them at school. You don't know what's going on in their personal life with their boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever's going on. Find something to say to build them up. Let the Spirit lead you in how you speak to them, how you build them up, how you cover them in prayer. Let the Spirit of God lead you in your parenting. It works. It takes the pressure off, too. If you're walking with God, the Spirit will use you to speak to people. The Spirit will use you in every way. Amen? Um, we got just a few minutes. I want to see if we have any questions. There's the legend back there. Adam Snyder, good to have you, buddy. Any questions tonight before we close? Yeah. So, one of the things I, I struggle with personally is honor thy father and thy mother. Mm-hmm. Sure. My rule in life, and this goes to my church relationships, even with my own family. I have, a, I have an immediate family member I haven't spoken to in five years, and it's not my choice. I had to, and here's why I had to. If it becomes demonic, and, and by demonic, I mean if it's destructive to your mental health or to your children especially, if those generational seeds or curses begin to be passed down to your children, the strife, the chaos the demonic activity and there's no repentance and they can't see what they're doing that's affecting your marriage or your children, you have to honor them from afar. You can't give the devil a foothold in your life. So here's the question, and I, you don't have to answer this publicly. I'm just saying this out loud. If your parents 
are hindering your walk with Christ, if they're really hurting you in a demonic way, like hurting, it's not you holding on to past bitterness from what they did or didn't do. In the present day, they're hurting your walk with Christ. They're a stumbling block. They're hindering you from walking with God. They're hurting and interfering with your marriage and how you raise your kids. Yeah, you, got, you can't allow that. You have to honor them from afar. There has to be repentance. They have to come to Christ. You can't allow demonic activity in your life. And now you should show grace and you have to confront that biblically in love. You have to tell them the truth and give them an opportunity to respond to that truth. But if they won't repent and if they won't even meet you halfway, you have to do your best to honor them from afar. But you can't allow anything demonic to be passed on to your children. I hope that helps you. You got it. Anybody else? Y'all just ready to eat, right? All right, let's pray it up. Father God, I thank you for this wonderful class. Lord, I thank you for the people who've made their way here. Thank you for Adam's wonderful lesson last week. Lord, we know we've heard so many principles about making church a priority, about making our relationship with your son Jesus a priority, about functioning in agape love that never fails, about modeling authority, setting boundaries, giving freedom with consequences. But Lord, perhaps the most profound thing we find in the book of Ephesians is to be led by the Spirit. So Lord, I just ask for your Holy Spirit to help every parent listening to this podcast, to help every person in Iba's house tonight. Lord, if they don't know what to do, may your Spirit give them wisdom because your Spirit is a teacher. Lord, if, if they don't know how to lead, may the Spirit lead because the Spirit is a leader. Father God, if they don't know what to say, may the Spirit lead because the Spirit's a counselor. So, Lord, we just yield to the Spirit. And, Lord, when we have those difficult moments through adolescence, teenagers, even young adults, Lord, we pray that the Spirit would quicken us with a prophetic word of encouragement, with a strategy to help us get through the wiles of parenting. So, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for the gift and the gifts you've given us to raise children, to have influence. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be stewards for a short time. We bless this church. Lord, we believe and expect a great harvest of souls this Sunday at October Bash. We pray that, Lord, you'd help us get the word out that lost people would come, unchurched would come from the north, south, east, and the west. We call it, we declare it, we believe it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.